<clears throat> Amen. Amen. Um, well, friends, it has been a joy to be with you here this month of July, and uh, I think uh, Pastor Jamie's coming back next week. It's been a long sabbatical, so I, I think he's I think he's ready. Um, and uh, excited for him to return. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend. He, he and Shauna and. Uh, it's been a joy for me to be here, and, and I will say, just coming off that video, um, thank you to all of you who serve in different capacities around here. You make Living Word a beautiful place, and, and if you're new here today, then um, just as one outsider to another, uh, this is a great place to put down some roots and begin to, to kind of figure out what a family of faith can look like and how you can begin to, to kind of put some roots down here. So we have been in this series uh, looking at the word on words, so kind of what does the scripture have to say when it comes to our words and how we use them? Uh, and I want to start with a quote from a person that you have heard of, and this is his, his take after 27 years in prison. It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison has done anything to us, it was to use silence and solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech impacts people. Nelson Mandela. Um, and if you know anything about his story, um, then, then you know uh, he uses his words wisely uh, to invest and point people. And I think that's the point of what this whole series has been about, is our words matter. And they have significance to them. Uh, they have impact. Uh, Proverbs talks about the words have the power of life or death. And we get to choose how we use that. We get to, to either say we're going to harness that in a good way and, and toward helping, or we're going to harness that toward harm. And we live in a culture that uh, does both, right? Uh, and we can see that. Listen, we're, uh, we live in a culture where we do both, um, and, and if we're honest about it. And so how do we get better at using our words? And so today, to end this series, uh, I've got a unique challenge for you. Uh, we have challenged ourselves to memorize two Bible verses in this whole series. Uh, one is James uh, 1.19 and Ephesians 4.29. Uh, anyone willing to give a shot at, at both verses? And the reason I say both is because, like, the gift that you could possibly win, I don't know if I have it or not, uh, but you, like, you, it's a good deal. And so, like, you got to do both. Uh, anyone willing to give it a shot? Crickets. Crickets. James 1.19. Anyone? James 1.19. Brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. How about Ephesians 4.29? Do not let... Oh, you got it? You want to do it? You raised your hand real quick. Okay. And I benefit those who listen. Awesome. Do you want to try James 119? Everyone should be. Amen. All right, you got it. Come on down. Come on down. <clears throat> it's a good gift. I'm not kidding. So 
Everyone likes Amazon. So, $25. So, thank you, and thank you for serving. So, you know, the, uh, the challenge here, and again, we're not above bribing people uh, to, to memorize Bible verses. <clears throat> and if you're new to church, just keep coming. You might win stuff. I don't know. Uh, but I hope James is okay that we're giving away money. <laughs> He's not here. So, okay. Um, this has been a joy. And, and the reason we've been doing this, having fun with it, is, um, friends, I, I really think, in fact, I know, if you will internalize those two verses, not just something you can say, and it's important to be able to say it, but if you can internalize those two things, this new rhythm, okay, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. If I could just work on that, your life will be so much better. Um, and, and you'll have so much more pleasure in using your words. If you do not let any unwholesome talk, remember we talked about saparos, that Greek word that don't serve up fish mouth, okay? If, don't let any unwholesome talk, but only what's helpful for building others up. Like, that's more than just being nice. I want you to be nice. It's way better than being mean. But we want us to be helpful to the people around us, which means I've got to be dialed into them. And listen, you are never going to tame your tongue. That's what we looked at the second week. Um, you're never going to get a full grip on it, neither am I. And, and what we can do is get better at guarding it. Uh, and, and that's even what uh, David writes in the, in the Psalms. God, put a guard over my lips. Uh, help me understand. And then last week we looked at this idea of gossip and how even snaky that feels. And we said, listen... Those with loose tongues cannot expect tight relationships. It's the reality of it. And so we don't have to dish the dirt. Uh, we can kind of hold that and pray for people. And, and we can, if I'm not part of the, the solution, I'm not part of the problem, then maybe I don't need to be part of spreading things around. And so I, there's a great Christian virtue in just learning how to hold your tongue sometimes. And so today, um, I want to come back to maybe another part of the negative side of communication when things go sideways. It ends up getting relationships sideways. And if we're honest, can actually get ourselves sideways. Because a lot of this is some self-talk uh, that we end up putting into. And so I want to look into this idea. Uh, we, we mentioned this last week, this idea of our thought life will impact our talk life. That what we think about will actually come out in the words that we begin to speak around us. And so we looked at Philippians chapter 4 and what Paul said to the church there in Philippi. To listen, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. Like, let this be the predominant part of your thought life because it will impact your talk life. What we let our minds think about will eventually be what our words talk about. And another side of the negative side of communication that we want to hinder or, or maybe put a guard around or kind of limit, put some boundaries on, is this idea of grumbling and complaining and whining and condemning self-talk. Anyone here ever struggle with any of this? Okay, so the three of us, um, we are going to have a great sermon for us. Um, for the rest of you, you can eavesdrop in. But for the three of us and those of you tuning in online, uh, you can understand that like, complaining and arguing and whining. Um, like, how many of you have kids? Okay, yeah, so you know. Um, people in our world, in our culture, we gripe about a lot of things, don't we? We have a tendency to gripe. How many of you have ever worked retail before? 
<laughs> How many of you can tell stories of people who whine and complain and gripe uh, at retail, right? Like, it, it just, it's crazy. I, I worked at a restaurant for a while, and it, 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 it's amazing. Um, it's amazing uh, how people will talk and what they will think about. Um, I looked back at the Better Business Bureau. This is just five years ago. Uh, here's some statistics from the Better Business Bureau just five years ago in the United States. Guess how many complaints were filed with the BBB? Over 160 million in just America. Okay, uh, 160 million. Let's look at the top four uh, complaints against companies, okay? Number one, roofing contractors, five million plus. Uh, number two, general contractors, five million. Any general contractors here? So sorry, it seems, I know it's tough. Uh, construction services, four million over that. Online retailers, four million plus of that. There were six complaints filed against a tree climbing training company. Did you even know that was a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. Um, but a, a company that trains you how to climb trees, that, and they got complaints. Um, a complaint-free world, which is a website, uh, stated that according to their studies that they've done, the average person complains between 15 to 30 times a day. Now, it's the internet. I don't know if that's right or not. Um, but if I look around in our culture, in our cultural moment that we're in, Man, I could kind of see that, that maybe the average person complains 15 plus times a day. You know, complaining has an effect on us. Did you know that when you complain, your body releases the stress hormone cortisol? All the extra cortisol released by frequent complaining can begin to impair your immune system, can make you more susceptible to high cholesterol and diabetes and heart disease and obesity. It even makes your brain more vulnerable to strokes. So complaining uh, has more than just social consequences. So why do we complain? Okay, that's a fair question. There's a host of reasons for that. Some are based on maybe failed expectations or unmet desires or dreams, can be based on conditions or circumstances that you're traversing that I traverse or relational fractures that we have to navigate, things that happen either in immediate family or external family or just in a network of relationships that you have at work. Could be, could be a whole host of factors that could lead to that. Uh, when it comes down to it, people often wonder, okay, well, are some people more predisposed to complain than others? Or, you know, like the, the half glass full, half glass empty. If you're more of a pessimist, do you kind of lean that way? If you're more of an optimist, do you lean the other way? Uh, if you're an introvert or an extrovert, if your Enneagram type is this or my personality type and the Myers-Briggs, is it this? Do I lean more toward complaining or arguing or, or just griping or whining about things? And listen, I don't know fully. I don't know if there's studies out there that would say, you know, definitely this, if you're wired this way, you lean that way. But here's the truth. I think we all can go in and out of the reality of the seasons that we navigate. Complaining can be a symptom of a failure to trust God. It can be a failure of trying to be submissive and grateful for his provision in life. And listen, sometimes complaining and whining is because I lack control, if I'm honest with myself, because I want control in that moment. Any other control freaks here? Okay. Um, I'm just learning and being honest about myself. The scriptures treat us and teach us 
that complaining can actually be a really serious sin. In the Old Testament, you think of the Exodus and how God rescued his people out of Egypt. And, and, and you've heard stories about this. If you're new to the Bible, just go back to the book of Exodus or Numbers, really just the first five books, and you kind of look at this idea of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, out of the slavery that they were trapped in there, and brings them to the promised land. There's a long journey in between. And what you'll find is, like, they complained a lot. Anyone else ever read through that story and go, man, these are a bunch of whiners? I don't understand. God rescues them. He does miracle after miracle. They get out and they just gripe and whine. And go, we want meat. We want, you know, just all this stuff. Like he's feeding a million people in the desert. Give him a break, okay? Just like complain about food, complain about so-called luxuries that they left behind. If you've ever read the story sometimes, you can get time and time and time again repetitive throughout their whole story of what's unfolding is just this whining and griping and complaining. And I remember... I felt like this holy anger of like, I'm just tired of these people. And then God's like, here's a mirror. And like, oh, I am those people. Um, in the sense of like, I do that. And yeah, it's not multiple voices, but it's one voice and it's the same heart. Like, I can get in that pattern. It's, not, it's a people problem. It's a me problem. Complaining can create a negative kind of fog over your conversations and ultimately into your relationships. Complaining can kill joy. It makes you unhappy. It makes everyone around you unhappy. How many of you love to log time around complainers? Nobody. The, the tendency, though, is we, we, we see it and diagnose it in others, but we often miss it or misdiagnose it in ourselves. And we fail to see it. The struggle is real, and it's hard to stop it sometimes. And sometimes we become conditioned, even in our culture, of, like, it's okay to complain. And listen, it's okay to have complaints when they're legitimate. I'm not saying don't ever complain and everything should be happy and rosy. But the idea, of it can become a part of our attitude very quickly. And the scriptures speak about this idea of, of saying, listen, you should not be about this. Numbers 11.1 1 said this. Uh, soon the people began to complain back to the people of Exodus about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. And then Yahweh's anger burned against them, and he sent a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Like that complaining kept rising up, and, and it, it irritated God. How many of you are irritated by complaining? Yeah, like the reality is it can get there. It can get there. By our own nature, by our own condition, we can tend to, to foster the habit of complaining if we're not careful to counteract it with the antidote. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in Philippians chapter 2, uh, if you have a Bible, you can go there, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Uh, Paul writes some words here that I, I think are, are pretty interesting for us when it comes to this idea of whining, complaining, griping, arguing. Here's what he says. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Hmm. Let me just start over. <laughs> Do some things without grumbling and arguing. No, that's not what he says. Okay, God. Um, Do most things without grumbling or arguing. That's what we'd like it to read. Do most things. 
do everything without grumbling or arguing. Whoo! That is a hard task. He goes on, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation that you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast in the day of Christ that I did not labor or run in vain. Paul's writing to this church. He's saying, listen, I know the culture in which you live. And here we are 2,000 years later, and humanity is humanity. I don't care what kind of advancements we've made. Humanity is humanity. And the, the leaning, the want to, the, the drift toward grumbling, complaining, whining, arguing still exists. It's still very prevalent, maybe even more so. And, and what Paul's saying is, listen, you've got to be different as a follower of Jesus. This is what that means. And it doesn't mean you can't have a gripe against something that's legitimate. But you're not going to let griping become who you are and how people perceive you and, and what people know about you. You don't want that. He's wanting us to understand. A.W. Tozer writes this, Among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul or destroy the testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. That there's something about complaining that can actually damage our testimony to a watching world. That's what Paul's saying, is do everything without complaining and arguing, because then you're going to shine. You're going to be different than the world around you. And this watching world's going to see something. See, complaining translates from a word that describes a bad attitude, which expresses itself in constant grumbling and negative murmuring. The Israelites constantly grumbled. They were murmuring against Moses. They were murmuring against the Lord. Murmuring had this negative context about it. Why is complaining and arguing so harmful? Well, maybe a couple thoughts. Complaining and arguing are harmful because they're the complete opposite of Christ's attitude. In Philippians chapter 2, you just go up a few verses and Paul's saying, listen, I want your attitude be, to be that of, like, Christ, who, who gave up everything and didn't complain and argue, submitted himself and served in a way. They hurt the cause of Christ among unbelievers. If all people know about the church is that members are constantly arguing or complaining or gossiping, then they get a bad impression of Christ and the gospel. Unbelievers can feel justified in criticizing Christians when that's what they see and that's what they experience around them. It is probably more likely that most church splits have been caused by arguing and complaining than actual theological debate or unorthodox or heresy. Most of it has probably been frictions that have never solved anything. And so the danger here is for us to let a spirit of complaining, arguing, whining become a part of who we are instead of saying, no, God, I want to do everything without grumbling, arguing, so that I can become something different. I can become blameless and pure. 
children of God without fault. Paul explains the importance of this in a believer's heart, that they needed to clean up their act in order to fulfill the mission of spreading the gospel. Paul's advice for their house cleaning is summed up in two words, blameless and pure. That you ought to be blameless, meaning that you're beyond reproach and carrying no justifiable criticism. This does not mean that you're sinless or perfect, because that ain't going to happen this side of heaven. What this is saying is, listen, this isn't become something that, that drives your character down, that you become pure. The Greek word pure here is, is used to describe wine that's not been diluted or a metal that's not weakened in its alloys, that it has a strength to it. There ought to be nothing in ourselves or in our church that would weaken the strength or contaminate the truth. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let it contaminate the reality of who you are and what you're trying to present to a watching world around you. If the church can be blameless and pure, then it's able to fulfill its mission to reach people with the love and hope of Christ. But when it gets caught up internally, only focused on itself, and stuck on whining and complaining and arguing, then it lives off mission. It's not about the mission of Christ in that moment. It's about my wants and my needs. And listen, it isn't that you can't have wants and needs. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you don't want the mission to get sidelined or, or put on injured reserve so that you can whine and complain and grumble. But that's what happened to the nation of Israel in the Exodus moments and why God responded the way he did. See, while believers are rescued out of this present evil age, Galatians 1.4, we're no longer in this world or of this world, but we are still in the world. We're in the world to, on commission to go into the world and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And we can only do that when we can be received. And if you're always complaining, arguing, whining, well, who wants to receive that? Right? Then in essence, when a body of believers remains pure and blameless, the contrast between them and the culture is so stark that they shine like stars, Paul's saying. They bring the light of truth into the darkness of depravity, and the stars light up the darkness in the night. Jesus told those who believe in him, you are the, what, light of the world. He said he was the light of the world, but he also turned and said, you are the light of the world. That we are partnered with him to shine in the darkness in a way, to shine in a way that is a witness to a watching world, and our thoughts will impact our actions which will eventually flow out in our words. Here's the truth. Our words have the ability to attract people. Our words also have the ability to repel people. What are your words doing? That's the bottom line, ultimate question. Your words will actually attract people toward Jesus, or your words can repel people from Jesus. So what are your words doing? That's what Paul's saying. That's what the scriptures are pointing to is, hey, don't let your words become a repellent to the world around you. You be blameless and pure. You, you be an attractant to the world around you. How do you start using your words to attract? Well, it, it really kind of starts in your thought life because your thought life will impact your talk life, which is why Paul said, listen, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, pure, admirable, think about these things. Because let you let your mind think about what will eventually be what your words talk about. 
Now, I think there's a truth for us to hold on to. You've heard the scripture, uh, I'm sure, of 2 Corinthians where it talks about take every thought captive, right? Uh, if you've heard that, um, I, I often struggled with that of, okay, what does that mean? Like, how do, I, how do I get my mind around, okay, taking every thought captive? Like, that seems exhausting if, if I just think about it. Um, like, how do you take every thought captive? And, and I think what I've landed on is I had a friend who is an air traffic controller, right? And if you know anything, uh, how many of you have flown on an airplane before? Uh, be thankful for air traffic controllers because uh, they keep you safe. And what they do is they basically are saying, okay, these uh, amount of flights are taking off at this current moment, and these amount of flights are landing at this current moment, and they are in control uh, of, of communicating to those planes who can land, who cannot. And I think that imagery is what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians, where he says, here's the verse that he uses, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Here, I think, in essence, is what Paul is saying. Become the air traffic controller of your mind. You cannot control every thought that flies into your mind. But you can control what thoughts land. And I think that's the point. That we can't control every thought we have in life and you'd be exhausted trying to think, okay, I got to control everything. No, no. What you dwell on, what you think about, what you allow to land and disembark and get around in your mind, that's what you can take captive. I think that's what Paul is saying when he says, listen, whatever's admirable, whatever's right, whatever's true, whatever's beautiful, think about these things. Let these things land in your mind and disembark and run around. They can build homes there in your mind. But every thought, we all have thoughts that we go, oh, where'd that thought come from? Uh, we all have thoughts that we wish we wouldn't dwell on. Well, then you become the air traffic controller of your mind. Uh, what fills your mind will fill your heart and eventually will flow out in your words. And Paul is pointing to this idea of making this connection, that we are to become those air traffic controllers of our mind. The promises of God can kill off the virus of negativity that dilute and pollute our minds. The virus is a condition of the culture in which we live. We live in a culture and in a moment where negativity uh, is all around us. Polarization is all around us. Everyone has an opinion on everything. Now, I don't have to dwell on that, and I can actually hit pause on that. One of the best things I do occasionally is I stop watching the news for a week. Like, it's okay to not watch the news for a week. Do you know what's going to happen? The world's going to go on. It doesn't hinge on you. It doesn't hinge on me. And I feel more free. Now, I don't do that forever because I want to stay engaged. But it's okay to hit pause and go, you know what? I'm going to work on me for a little bit. I'm going to work on air traffic control of my own head and my own thoughts and my own mind. And God, I want to be directed in your way. I want to get rid of grumbling and complaining. How do you do that? Well, the antidote is real simple. It's gratitude. Now, simple to say, a challenge to do. To be a person who cultivates an attitude of gratitude. It is what I think the scriptures continually come back and back to, is to cultivate this idea of, 
uh, I want to foster gratitude. I want to kind of sideline grumbling. I, I want to put it on the bench. It doesn't have to be in the game. I want gratitude to be in the game. I want gratitude to play. So I'm going to put this, uh, you're on injury reserve, grumbling, complaining. Uh, gratitude, you're in the game. Uh, I want to focus here. So uh, John Harry uh, Joet, a British preacher, earlier generation, said this about gratitude. He said, gratitude is a vaccine, it's an antioxidant, and it's an antiseptic. Like a vaccine, it can prevent the invasion of a disgruntled, discouraged spirit. Like an antioxidant, gratitude can prevent the effects of the poison of cynicism and criticalness and grumbling. Like an antiseptic, a spirit of gratitude can soothe and heal the most troubled spirit. We can grow our gratitude by recounting and remembering all the blessings of God. Now, listen. God blesses you and me. God's blessing is over humanity. Uh, we experience that in the monsoons. God allows his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's a blessing of God, right? We'd like more blessing um, because we enjoy the rain. We need it, right? We live in a desert, <laughs> so the rain is good. God has blessing over humanity. God also has specific blessing over you. And I think how we grow our gratitude is to savor and to remember and to, to, to kind of hold on to, these are the blessings God's given me. So what would it be like for you to begin to develop a gratitude or attitude of gratitude in your own heart, just to even take a journal or to take out a note on your phone and say, I'm gonna start enlisting. What if you just did it for this week? God, I wanna have an attitude of gratitude. I wanna develop that more. So uh, take out a note on your phone and just name it gratitude. And Twice each day, pause for one minute, 60 seconds, you can do that, I can do that, and go, okay, what am I grateful for? And get specific. Friday, I got to go play golf. Me, I got to go play. Other people can play, but I got to go play. I love to play golf. And I got to be, that was a specific blessing that God allowed me the opportunity to go, and I actually played really well. So that was exciting. But this idea of I got to go do something that was for me and just know that God enabled me to have the capacity to do that, the capability and, and the time to be able to do that. I, I get to wake up and walk downstairs and make coffee, and I get to see my kids, like my kids. Other people have kids, and that's great, but these are my kids. They live in my house. I, I get the joy of watching them grow. My son turned 25 yesterday. I still remember when I brought him home. And I didn't know what I was doing. I brought him home and I remember going, Lord, help. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, my dad was a really good dad. I'd like to be known as a great dad. I'd like to be known as a good preacher. I want to be known as a great dad. And so how do I do that? And for the last 25 years, I've tried. I have failed a lot. I've had some successes in that. But this is my blessing. And so hanging out with him yesterday was like, gosh, this is looking at 25 years of investment into this kid, uh, into to who he is. It's remembering the sound of an acoustic guitar. That when you get to listen to maybe some of your favorite music, that it, that's a blessing to you. And that is part of the gratitude. It's, it's maybe, uh, ladies, it's getting your nails done. 
my wife got to get a pedicure this week. She loves that. I think that would be torture, but she loves that. And so for her, that was a blessing for her. You know, it's taking a walk in the morning. It's listening to your favorite song for five minutes. It's a longer hug than usual from your spouse. Those are blessings that we can bank and hold on to. And so when you have an attitude of gratitude, you're actually getting specific. You're not just saying, God, hey, thanks for life. Okay, well, good. I'm glad you got life. That's, that's good. But, like, get specific in that. What are some of those specific blessings that God has given and poured into your life? Now, we can also grow our gratitude by remembering the promises of God. So not just the blessings of God, but the promises of God. That that's what we get to hold on to. I love what Peter writes uh, as Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he says. His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he says, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. We get to participate in the divine nature. Peter writes this. Now, isn't it fascinating that it's Peter who writes this? Remember Peter? Peter, bold guy, had a lot of fire in him. Had a, he was the only one who was willing to get out of the boat and walk on water. The only one who asked Jesus, hey, can I come out to you? And he did. He sank, but he walked on water first. The only one, the other 11 were boat potatoes. He was the only one. He was the one, remember, that when Jesus was going before his trial, Jesus said, listen, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, no way, no way. He's the one swinging the sword. And then Peter denies him three times. The rooster crows. He runs away in disgrace. And what I love about God is that that's not the last word of Peter. Aren't you glad that your worst moment, your moment of shame, isn't the last moment, according to God, that he gives us better moments? I love Mark chapter 16, verse 7. The angel says to the people that are there at the tomb, you go and tell his disciples and Peter. Isn't it cool that God included that? You go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he said. You go tell his disciples and Peter. I think Peter needed that and Peter. And this is what Peter discovered is that God's promises are true. And they hold us. Can I just remind you of some of God's promises? God promises to never leave you nor forsake you, friend. As one who has said yes to Jesus, you will never be abandoned. God promises that he is with you no matter the challenge, the setback, the failure, or any hurdle you face. You are never, ever alone. God promises that his power is made perfect in weakness, that he is sufficient, and that he is enough for you. You will never face a situation where he is not able to lead you through. 
God promises his love is an everlasting kind of love, not one based on reciprocal give and take, but one where he is all in and totally committed to you. You are once and for all forever loved and valued by him. God promises to work all things together for your good. He is the greatest support. He is for you and for your best. Jesus is always your advocate. He is greater than any and every enemy and any attack that comes against you. Others may speak against you in this life, but God speaks words of affirmation and dignity and healing and reconciliation over you. You have one that speaks for you and sings over you with songs of love. Jesus is the one who loves you most and he loves you best. He speaks wisdom into you, guidance for you. He is your encourager. He is your hope. He is your protector. He is your sustainer. He is your provider. He is your counselor. He is your comforter. He is the light that leads you forward each and every day and the one you will ultimately lead you home that you will be with him forever. Through these, Peter says, he has given us every great precious promise so that through them, we may participate in the divine life. One of the Hebrew words for meditate, it literally means to murmur or to converse with yourself. I, I wonder if maybe the words we speak over others, and that's what we spent most of the series talking about. That's powerful. Words have power to them. Thoughtless words can wound as deeply as a sword, but wisely spoken words can heal, Proverbs 12, 18. But I think there's also some words that we need to speak over ourselves. So we can meditate and say, well, I want to develop an attitude of gratitude. I don't want to be a grumbler, a complainer, a whiner. I might have my moments, we all do. But I don't want that to define me. I want to be the air traffic controller of my mind. God, I want to focus on what matters most. And I want to have my own murmuring self-talk in a positive way. To always be rehearsing the blessings that you give me. To always be rehearsing the promises that you give me that I might participate in the divine life with you. Friends, your words have power to them. So may you use your words wisely for those around you. And may you use your words wisely for the one that you live with, yourself. So Jesus, I thank you for what your word says about our words. God, we want to have a new rhythm, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We want to use our words to build up and be helpful, not just nice. We're never going to fully tame the tongue, God, but would you help us get better at guarding it? God, when it comes to, to gossip, to murmuring, to complaining, to arguing, would you help us to, to zip it? Would you help us to be people who put that on the side and say, God, help us develop an attitude of gratitude. So Lord, in this last song, would you maybe just whisper one truth that you want us to get better at working at and working on, that you want to go to work within our spirit helping refine us to be the people that you long us to be. God, what's the word you want us to hold on to coming out of this whole month together? What do you want to drill down for each one of us? So, so take 30 seconds, just ask God. God, what's the word that you want me to hold on to? What do you want to drill down into my character, to my soul, 
What do you want me to get better at when it comes to my word?